A swamp gone mad. A stagnant, seething bed of life suddenly rises up, angry and without provocation, turns its virulent newborn hatred on Man-Thing. Hello everyone and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide through the weird, the wacky, and the often wonderful of 70s swamp-based monster comics. On today's episode, we'll be continuing the three-part storyline involving the Zeridna cult. This time, it's the middle bit with the wizards and the space gladiators. No, I'm not kidding. But before that, I'll be talking briefly about drugs. So it'll, you know, be far out, man. But first, in previous episodes, I have, as you're probably painfully aware if you're listening to this program, desperately pleaded for feedback and comments in ways that have, at times, been borderline pathetic. I'm not proud. But I'll tell you this, I'll do it again. And I'll tell you why, because that pleading has yielded results. I have received several very nice comments on the email and the Twitters and such. One in particular, of the email variety, came in from Marshall Latham of the Journey Into podcast. Now, he wrote a rather nice, extremely nice, actually, uh, and very complimentary email full of very encouraging things, and I want to read a little bit of it here. Now, I'm not going to read the the compliments. That seems a bit too self-aggrandizing even for me, but know that they are much appreciated. So the part I'm going to read is specific to Man-Thing, and it's something that I enjoyed reading and would like to respond to. Marshall wrote, My enjoyment of the Man-Thing comes from the fact that he is so different than most other superheroes or even monsters in the Marvel Universe. Manny is almost a force of nature. Yes, he was once Ted Salas, and there's an origin story for him, but he's not yearning to return to his once-human form. He's almost mindless, responding only to emotion and curiosity. Everything that fears burns at the Man-Thing's touch, but the Man-Thing is only reacting to the actions or emotions of others. He's not a hero or an anti-hero. He's not a villain or a menace. He's simply the Man-Thing. And that allows for a variety of stories that can be woven around him. It can be demons or wizards or drug cartels or greedy businessmen or suicidal clowns or hippies or superheroes or Howard the Duck. You never know what you're going to get. I like that. Well, you know what? I like that too. (laughs) So yes, that is exactly right. (laughs) I couldn't have said it better myself, Mr. Latham. One of the brilliant things that Gerber was able to do with Man-Thing was to make him a conduit for stories, to be told around him and through him. Man-Thing does not have a personality of his own. Rather, he feeds on and at times takes on the feelings and personalities of others. But he's not simply a blank slate. He's a magnet that draws the stories to him and enhances those stories with his presence. Often he can resolve that story with a strong hand or one that burns, but that's not the primary focus. Mostly, he's used simply as a way to tell a different kind of story. You're right in that you never know what you're going to get, because any story, any kind of character, any theme, any issue can be told in that nexus of all realities, that convergence of story. And that's the essence of the book and the brilliance of Man-Thing. 
So thank you again, Marshall, for uh, for your feedback and your kind words. Uh, really made me think. And it's always great to find someone else who has an appreciation for this book uh, as much as I do. So thanks again for writing in. Uh, for everyone else, that's, that was Marshall Latham. He has uh, a podcast called Journey Into Podcast. Uh, that can be found at the journeyintopodcast.blogspot.com. I'll put a link to that in the episode description. Uh, so, yes, again, thanks thanks for the kind words. They do mean a lot. I actually find it a bit humbling, uh, you know, the kind things you said, but also motivating. You know, for me, I do this because it's fun. There's no ulterior motive involved here. I just enjoy putting the show together and reading the comics and doing the research, etc., but there are times when one wonders, you know, am I just spinning my wheels here? Is this all a waste of time? But then you get that one bit of encouragement, and that makes all the difference. And that's what makes it worthwhile. That's what makes you want to continue. So again, can't say thank you enough. Uh, not only to Marshall, but to everyone who's written in to say nice things. Uh, I am extremely appreciative. Now, if you'd like to be like Marshall, and really, I think that you should be, you can contact the show by email at nexus at daddyelk.com. That's N-E-X-U-S at daddyelk, D-A-D-D-Y-E-L-K dot com. Or on the Twitter, at Nexus of All. Or you can go to the website, nexusofallrealities.com, and leave a comment on individual episodes. You've got options, people. That's what I'm trying to say. So don't make me beg. Okay, fine. Please. <laughs> All right, I'm going to take a quick break, play a trailer, and when I come back, I'm going to talk about drugs. Star Trek. Comic books. Mythology. Video games. Toys. Star Wars. Just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcast, presented by two true freaks. Come join me, Gene Hendricks, for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with, and be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at twotruefreaks.com. It's quite easy when looking at Silver and Bronze Age comics to immediately think, geez, these guys are on so many drugs. The trippy visuals, the off-the-wall storylines, the way the comics were embraced by college students and the youth culture in general. All this could lead you to the conclusion that everyone was palling around with Aldous Huxley. So, I suppose it seems surprising to learn that many of the creators were not LSD-gobbling potheads touring with the Grateful Dead or riding the bus with merry pranksters. Creators like Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, of course, were from the World War II generation. They were in their 40s when they were writing the classic Marvel storylines, and as much as Stan wanted to play up the idea that he was hip to the college scene and down with the kids... I find it hard to believe he was hanging with the hippies and smoking a bong on Alsie's floor. And then, of course, there's someone like Steve Ditko, who was often looked at for his psychedelic art and crazy visuals as having a drug-influenced style. Hell, Pink Floyd used his artwork on an album cover. 
But for all of his Doctor Strangeness, the reality is Ditko was a conservative, an objectivist, for goodness sakes, and he was not the least bit into or even supportive of the drug culture. Now, the younger creators, the second-wave Marvelites, if you will, there were a few who liked to indulge from time to time. Jim Starlin and Steve Englehart, for instance, they were known to partake occasionally in an illicit substance or two and attempted to translate this to comics to a varying degree of success. But the one writer that is most commonly associated with trippy content at this time is Steve Gerber. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say something along the lines of, oh, I just read such and so by Gerber. Man, that guy must have been so high. And again, when you look at what he wrote and what he came up with, it's not hard to come to that conclusion. Howard the Duck? Man thing. Pretty soon on this show, I'm going to be covering a barbarian character who's created from a jar of peanut butter. Yeah, that's a real thing that happens in this comic. So, so undeniably, the guy must have been stoned out of his gourd, right? Well, wrong. Incredibly, he came up with all of his ideas without the use of psychedelics. In fact, Steve Englehart was quoted as saying about Gerber, quote, He was one of those guys who was militant about not altering his consciousness. Gerber's weirdness came directly from his id, end quote. And that comment is revealing. His ideas came directly from his id, his subconscious, and his experience combined. They combined to make something interesting and weird. He was able to translate real-world events and tropes of the genre into characters and situations that were metaphor and parody and satire, and that were, yes, bizarre on the surface, and filled with silly, sometimes biting humor, but always imbued with just a touch of pathos. And this thought process was not something that came in a vial or something you rolled up. His creativity was not predicated on hallucinations, but rather, it's a testament on how truly unique his creative thought really was. Sure, there may have been a psychedelic zeitgeist in the air, but overall, Gerber's writing proves that true originality comes from within and not from an external source or substance. By the way, Psychedelic Zeitgeist is going to be the name of my new prog rock band I'm starting. Alright, I could go on and on with this, but I'm going to stop there for now. There's a lot more to be said on this subject, and I'll be talking more about drugs and drug culture in later episodes. Because drugs really did play a big part in comics of the 60s and 70s. Regardless of whether or not the creators were doing the drugs, the culture surrounding the drugs was enormously influential. The art and the music that sprung from it, as well as the violence and the crime associated with it. And all of this influenced the inner workings of Marvel, which in turn influenced Gerber's writing and his attitude, and the character Man-Thing specifically. But again, that's for a later time. Now I'm going to talk about Adventure into Fear number 14, The Demon Plague. Cover dated June 1973, released on or about March 1973, Stan Lee presents Man-Thing, Steve Gerber writer, Val Mayeric artist, Chick Stone inker, Artie Symek letterer, S. Goldberg colorist, Roy Thomas editor, the cover by Alan Weiss. The story opens with Man-Thing being attacked by everything in the swamp. This unrestrained violence, unsurprisingly, confuses the creature. He beats them senseless 
and hurls the attackers deep into the swamp. Meanwhile, acts of violence are going on all over the country. In St. Louis, two brothers are playing cowboy when suddenly the older of the two pistol whips the younger one. In Cincinnati, a secretary snaps and inflicts a tremendous kick to her boss's jaw. This being the 70s, he no doubt deserved it for a multitude of reasons, but still, violence. And in Detroit, an easygoing salesman begins yelling, KILL! while attempting to run down a couple and their baby with his car. Back in Florida, the Kales are watching the evening news when one of your more unprofessional anchormen announces, THE WORLD HAS GONE CRAZY! In New York, elderly women beat construction workers. In a generic Hispanic country, the president takes the oath of office naked. On an unnamed campus, faculty maim the students. Yes, the text says maimed. And, although it doesn't say this in the issue, I'm going to assume there was human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, and mass hysteria. Joshua Kale understands what is happening. The takeover of human minds by the netherworld demons. He immediately summons the cult together. The cult members gather in the swamp to chant strange hymns to gods unknown and call upon the mist of Maylock to solve crimes in a down-home and folksy way. No wait, that would be the mists of Matlock. These are actually the mists of Maylock, which open a portal to a place a million universes away in a space outside time, where Jennifer Kale and Man-Thing, who still share a psychic link, are transported. They awake in mystical chains confronted by an enchanter, whose name is, and I may have this wrong, it's spelled D-A-K-I-M-H, which I believe is pronounced Dakameh. Dakameh does not seem very impressed with the two travelers and considers them dangerous, then contemplates a way to destroy them before finally deciding to give them a chance to survive by having Man-Thing fight in a cosmic arena. You know, like you do. They are instantly teleported to the arena where Jennifer sits in the audience with Dakameh and a royal somebody of vague importance, while Man-Thing appears in the arena itself, confronted by his challenger, Mongu the Gladiator. I'll say that again. Mongu the Gladiator. Man-Thing, much like the readers at this point, is really confused and simply attempts to avoid Mongu's axe, much to the frustration of Mongu. And the demonic crowd scream for pain and blood and death, preferably with the much suffering. When Mongu's blade finally does strike Man-Thing, it only finds a pile of ooze. This frightens Mongu. Now that he feels fear, Man-Thing grabs his hand, burning it, causing the flesh to melt and fusing it to his axe forever, proving that Mongu only pawn in Game of Life. This turn of events causes Man-Thing to be declared the winner, and Dakameh sends them home with a wave of his hand. Jennifer reunites with Joshua as Man-Thing slumps off into the swamp because that's sort of his M.O. now. But Joshua knows the final battle is yet to come. So the cover of this issue shows Man-Thing crouching in anger, confronting hooded cult members with a captive Jennifer as the generic leader of the cult, not Joshua, mind you, says, Come forth, ye who dwell within the swamp, or the girl's life is forfeit. And if you picked up this issue and said, You know what? 
I can totally tell this story involves a portal to another dimension where a wizard makes Man-Thing fight in a cosmic gladiator-style combat. You'd be a liar. There is no way anyone saw this coming, least of all the cover artist, because that scene does not happen at all. Nope. Doesn't even come close. Now, at this time, cover artists commonly didn't know what was going to happen in the comic. They were commissioned way early, and artists were given just a short brief on what the story beats would be. But I often wonder if artists like Alan Weiss, who did this cover, would read the comic after it was completed and get pissed and say, this has nothing to do with what they told me to draw. Ah, they probably just took the paycheck and never thought of it again, leaving it to obsessive fans such as myself to mull over silly stuff like this for no real reason. But that's beside the point. The real point is this. This story is gloriously bonkers. And this gets back to what we were saying earlier. Anything can happen. The opening montage of violence is kind of a strange beast. It's meant to be a comedic scene, and it is funny, with the naked presidents and the old ladies beating up construction workers, reminiscent of the hell's grannies of Monty Python. Even the secretary high-kicking her boss is humorous in its depiction, but there's a weird undercurrent here as well. The kids are playing with toys, obviously, but the little one does get pistol-whipped, even if it's just a toy. And the salesman is trying to run over a baby in a pram. I mean, that's dark. And that's what I mean by a strange beast. The violence is cartoonish in its depiction, played as slapstick, while at the same time conveying a much darker implication. The 70s walked a real fine line with this sort of stuff. Now, and I love... (laughs) I love the news anchor on the TV introducing his segment by just yelling, In short, tonight's news is, the world is going crazy! Now there's some calm, rational reporting for you. (laughs) But, But I guess, actually, that's cable news in a nutshell these days. See? Yet another way in which Gerber was way ahead of his time. And I should mention the insanity that is Man-Thing battling the creatures of the swamp. Just grabbing vultures out of the sky and swinging an alligator by the tail like a party favor and heaving it into the swamp. All culminating with another alligator leaping through Man-Thing and getting stuck in his stomach, only to burn and dissolve away into ash. That's nuts, people. And we haven't even gotten to the interdimensional portal yet. The cult stuff is interesting, but glossed over really quickly. It's almost as if Gerber had a different storyline in mind that he was going to follow, but switched gears and went with the Cosmic Gladiator instead. For instance, there's a moment when one cult member challenges Joshua, which is a plot thread from the previous story. That plays out basically like this. You're a traitor. No, I'm not. Okay, then. Sorry. And then they move on. To be fair, it was probably best to drop that bit of the story anyway, because interdimensional portal with cosmic gladiators. Duh. Speaking of which, yeah, that came out of nowhere. It's ridiculous and silly, and yes, it's awesome. Seriously, Mongu? What more does one really need to say? To be honest, though, this turn of events isn't really just out of the blue. I mean, the situation is out of the blue, but the idea that the situation could exist is not. 
Gerber has been pushing the idea of multiple realities and infinite possibilities for several issues now. All he's really doing here is cranking it up to 11. He's got dozens of ideas, and he's throwing them at you all at once, and being a bit subtle about it as well. I, I know, I know, it sounds insane to say this story is subtle, but, but hear me out. A typical comic at this time would have gone to great lengths to give a detailed, albeit rushed, backstory where every little intricacy would be laid out, including names and places and motivations, and very little left to the imagination. But here, we are told the name of the place, Sandt. Uh, it's S-A-N-D-T, so Sandt. But, <laughs> but we're not told where or what it is, other than it's outside time, a million universes away. We really don't know what Dagmeh's deal is, and yes, I know that's not how it's pronounced, but now it's stuck in my head, so you're probably going to have to get used to that. He seems uh, to know Jennifer, or at least he thinks he does, but that's not explained. We don't know who this royal person is, or what his role is, or why the arena, what's its purpose? How does it tie in with the demons of the Netherspawn? There are more questions here than answers. So there's a fair bit of subtlety intermixed with all this insanity. Gerber's a good storyteller. He's planting a lot of seeds here to be picked up on later, and they're placed in the middle of a batshit crazy plot. This is good stuff. Okay, let's finish off with a couple minor odds and ends. Uh, Mongu has a very Kirby-esque look to him, short and solid and square. I've always loved that Kirby style. And I don't know if that was intentional, but I appreciate it nonetheless. And finally, Man-Thing slumping off at the end is becoming rather tired. And I'm going to have to get used to it because it's going to happen pretty much every single issue for a long, long time. And I get that it's a convenient way to end the story, to wrap everything up without having a massive boo monster just standing there being awkward, but... I still would love a different kind of ending other than Sad Monster walking away. I feel like we should be playing the Sad Hulk song at the end of every synopsis. Um, actually, it's not a bad idea. Perhaps I will start doing that. Alright, one more quick break and then I'll wrap up. Hello everyone! My name is Paul Matthew Carr, also known as Daddy Elk to my internet friends, and I like to make stuff up and write it down. Occasionally, I'll take those written down stories and read them aloud into a microphone to record them for others to listen to later. These bits of audio are collected into a neat little program called the ElkCast, and it's guaranteed to make you smile. Unless it doesn't, because life is a rich tapestry of sadness and euphoria peppered throughout a fragile existence, and no one person can really guarantee happiness in a complex, ever-changing, and diverse world. But I can tell you this, if you listen to the show, you'll not only get the aforementioned story, but also the story behind the story, anecdotes, and inspiration. And if you're not careful, you just might learn something. Spoilers, you won't learn anything. But you might be entertained, so why not give it a shot? Listen to the Elkcast, a storytelling podcast with me, Paul Matthew Carr. You can find it on multiple listening venues like iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And online at daddyelk.com. You won't be disappointed. Unless you are, you know... Because of the whole tapestry thing. I probably could have sold that better. Thank you everyone for listening to yet another fabulous Man-Thing thing that I do. The current story concludes next time 
in Adventure into Fear number 15, From Here to Infinity, which hopefully will include a makeout session on a swamp beach. Alas, spoilers, it does not. But it will include some Frazetta-style character design, as well as me doing Buzz Lightyear impersonations. So look forward to that. I hope to have the next episode released before the end of the year, uh, unless I don't because I suck. I mean, holidays. Holidays. That's a valid excuse, right? Holidays? Sure. Let's go with that. So uh, anyway, that just leaves me to say, you've been listening to The Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elk production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. You can contact the show on Twitter, at Nexus of All, or online at our website, nexusofallrealities.com, and leave a comment on individual episodes. Or send an email to nexus at daddyelk.com, and I'll be your best friend. You can also find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And go on and leave a comment there. That would be awesome. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? All right, so nothing left to say. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and bye. This turn of events causes Man-Thing to be declared the winner, and Dakame sends them home with a wave of his head. <laughs> oh, jeez. Take two. <laughs> Take two!